Well, before I introduce a dear friend and and guest speaker this morning, uh, he asked me to read the passage that he'll be preaching on in Acts chapter 17. And so if you have your Bibles, please open to Acts chapter 17. I'll I'll begin reading with verse 16. Uh, Before I do that, I just wanted to mention he is from Athens, Greece. And uh, and so I think this is an interesting passage that he'll preach from because uh, he's right there where all this took place uh, about 2,000 years ago. So Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 16, this is God's holy and inspired word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The gospel or the word of the Lord. Amen. But this time I have the privilege of introducing our guest preacher this morning. He's a a dear friend of Andy and a friend of mine. And I had the privilege of, of seeing him in action a couple years ago in Athens, Greece. I've been there twice and Andy's been there multiple times. And he's a very, very busy man. Uh, in fact, I asked him, I said, Yodis, uh, what's your plan the rest of the day and the week? And he said, well, I'm driving to Birmingham and I'm preaching two services tonight in a church in Birmingham and then I'm off to Montgomery, Alabama and I'm gonna be visiting some pastors there in Montgomery and then I'm flying back home to Athens. Uh, so we are fortunate to have Yodis here with us this weekend. And he said, I couldn't, I, I couldn't miss uh, being here with Andy and you all. And uh, so Yodis, uh, he felt the call in ministry at 16. Uh, He started at 21 years old serving the Greek Evangelical Church as its pastor, and then he moved to Boston uh, with his wife, and he studied there in Boston and was a a pastor of a Greek church in Boston for around six years. And now he has been the senior pastor of First Greek Evangelical Church, which he'll tell you about. He's been there for 25 years. And my wife and I and mom got to host him last night, and I, I told my wife afterwards, I said, Stephanie, I said, Yodis is one of the, the best leaders I've ever met. And, and I really mean that. I really mean that. I mean, I've had the privilege of not only seeing him in, a, in Athens, but, but hearing him preach a number of times. And what God is doing through this man is profound. Uh, he and his ministry there at the church, they have helped start nine church plants and initiatives all around this big city of Athens, which is like less than 1% Christian. And what what God is doing through his leadership and through that mother church is amazing. And it's inspiring me here at Christ's Covenant. We can do the same thing here in Knoxville around to be the mother church of Lord willing many in the years to come. Uh, He's married to to Nofi and they have three sons, George, Theophilus, and Jason. So Christ's Covenant, let's give a warm welcome to Yodas Kentartis. 
Well, uh, you raised the expectation very high. I'm not all of that. Uh, it's my pleasure and privilege to be with you. Uh, I have been at Christ Covenant, I don't remember how many years ago, but it was another time. Again, Jim Barnes was the pastor at that time, Seth was the associate. And it's a great blessing to be back and uh, me be in your midst. Um, today, we will talk about uh, Acts 17, as we read about Paul's visit in Athens. Of course, there are a couple of reasons. The first is pretty obvious why we should uh, uh, discuss that passage. And uh, uh, I would like you to see that picture. This is what I see from my office window. Uh, this is, in case you don't uh, realize, this is the Parthenon, and uh, right behind that is the Mars Hill. So uh, many times I say that if there was ever a competition about the best view out of a pastor's office window, I'm sure that I would win. Uh, so that's, uh, I mean, we have another slide that you can see, like from Mars Hill, which is a big rock. Of course, nobody knows for sure where exactly was this you know, court and what exactly was the purpose of it, but most people assume that there is this big rock because that is what Aeropagos means. It's the, the rock of dedicated to Aris, one of the gods in antiquity. So this is from another view. So the first reason why we talk about this passage is, you know, I'm from there. Uh, and uh, this is very close to our hearts. But also there is another reason, and that is... Uh, because uh, today you think about missions, okay? And I believe that going on missions is really related, it goes hand in hand with being missional at where you are. Let me repeat that. I believe that going on missions is really connected with being missional wherever you are. Uh, now, what does it mean to become missional and why we, we say that. Let me tell you a story. Uh, many years ago when I was in Boston, the first year we arrived, I was studying at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and the first Christmas we had the idea to travel, drive with the little car we had all over to Chattanooga to visit some good friends. Then it, we were young and foolish, we didn't realize what exactly that meant. Uh, during the winter to do that trip. It was Christmas time. Now, here is a time where we didn't have GPS, okay? So you had to rely on maps and written directions. So the directions that my friend gave me said this. Once you arrive in Chattanooga, you will see in the corner a Baptist church. Turn right. Once we arrived in Chattanooga, <laughs> uh, we realized that there is a Baptist church in every corner. <laughs> so we had to call back and we said, you know, please give us another clue because that is not helping us. Now, that is, you realize the context that especially you live in the South. So if there is a church, a Baptist church or a church in every corner, then you realize, okay, why should I be involved in missions? You know, missions is something that happens out there. I need to be away, to be far away, to be in another country, to be on a mission, all right? Now, the good thing is that this is changing. It is changing uh, here. It changes in Greece, if we can see the next slide. Like a couple of weeks ago in Greece, our parliament voted to legalize same-sex marriage. And that is a reality that is true in Greece that was supposed to be a Christian nation, a Christian Orthodox nation, and same thing is happening here. Secularization 
comes in. And of course, this is sad, but in a strange way, it gives the church a new opportunity to recapture her essence, which is missions. Once again, we realize that we live in a society, we live in a context, that we have a mission there. We need to become missional. So I chose this passage because what we see is Paul being on a mission, but particularly in this passage, we see Paul being missional. So we'll try to find four components of what it means to be missional. Now, when we go to Acts 17, uh, Luke, who is recording it, uh, you know, there are two main parts. The first is a narrative frame that tells us how Paul ended up in Athens, what happened, so that he gave that speech. And the second part is the speech. So we're not going to deal with the speech, with his talk. We're just going to go with the narrative frame. And as we examine it, uh, I hope that we'll uh, underline four main components of what is needed in order to have a missional attitude. So we'll start with the first. In order to have the missional attitude, which if we can go to the next slide, uh, we need to live our ordinary lives with gospel intentionality. To live our ordinary lives with gospel intentionality. What do we mean by that? Let's go to the next slide. Uh, here is Paul in Athens. How did he end up in Athens? Uh, Paul never intended to really do something in Athens. We can assume that Paul uh, wanted to go to Corinth. That was the key city at that time. Of course, we all know Athens, but Athens at the time of Paul was not a significant city. It really relied in her past. Corinth was the important city. But if you remember the story, Paul was with his co-workers in Philippi, then in Thessalonica, then in Berea. And in Berea, there was an uproar, there was persecution. So he had to flee literally in the middle of the night in order to save himself. And he ended up in Athens and his co-workers stayed back. So he was in Athens waiting for his co-workers to come. And as he was waiting, things happened. Now, something which is very important is that narrative is full of participles. Uh, this is your grammar lesson, not indicatives. Indicatives indicate intention, plan. You do something. Participles simply describe life as it is, what has happened. So Paul was waiting, and as, he's, as he was waiting, things happened. So that is the definition of what it means to be missional. So it's not that you're on a mission, but whatever you do, and as you are doing whatever you are doing, you do it with gospel intentionality, you realize. And if we go on, we'll see that this passage is full with, with participles. So then we read that uh, as he started walking around in the city, as he was waiting, uh, he saw. And that, perhaps a better translation, is upon seeing. Again, another participle. You know, he just noticed things. And then we continue. Uh, the next slide, please. Uh, so he started talking with those who happened to be there, again, a participle. And when Paul, next slide, when Paul summarizes what happened in his, uh, when he started speech, his speech, his, his talk, he says, for as I was passing along. It's full of participles. So that does not mean that it's a bad thing to have a plan. Uh, it's not a bad thing to have an organized mission endeavor. 
Paul is on his mission, second missionary trip, actually. Okay, so he is on a mission. But in Athens, we have this other dimension. He's not on a mission. He just has some time to spare, and he goes out, walks around, and as he sees, and as he talks with those who happen to be there, things happen. So that is the best definition of what it means to be missionary. Let's, let's see the definition. is when ordinary people, I mean, Paul is not there as a missionary. He's there as a tourist, as a visitor, okay? So he's not in Athens as a missionary. That's not his intention. He's a so ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. So there is no moment that the gospel is not important. There is no moment that you are not an ambassador of Jesus Christ. So missional means that you do ordinary things, whatever you do, whatever is, it, is the thing that you are doing today, tomorrow, next day, ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. So that is the first component of what it means to be missional, to see God in the details of your life. This is the part, God loves participles. God loves to work in the midst of everyday life. So that is the first thing. The second component, as we continue, is that we also need to develop a, a holy inner indignation. We need to learn the art of being properly upset. Now, why we say learn? Because our society is teaching us one thing, to be tolerant, okay? Which is a good thing in most cases, but there must be a time that we need to be properly upset, but careful, a holy inner indignation. Let's talk about that and let's explain what we mean. So uh, we read that as Paul is walking around and he sees all these idols, his spirit was provoked within him. And there is a very important word that is being used to describe this provocation that Paul feels, this indignation that Paul feels inside him. There is the word paroxysm. So uh, this is also a medical term, and you know more Greek than you think you know, but uh, that, that word means something which is really intense, uh, an outburst of emotion or whatever, okay? So Paul feels that, the paroxysm. Now, this is not a, a use, which is a, a word which is very common, even in the New Testament in Greek. It's a rare word. But when we go to the Old Testament, and when we see the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, what is called Septuagint, uh, this is a word that is, is being used very often in a very particular context. It's a word that describes God's reaction when, you know, how God feels God's reaction when God encounters and confronts, guess what? idolatry. So let's read this verse from the book of Isaiah. We have many verses. I just chose one. God says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. People who provoke me in the Greek translation is paroxysm, the same word like the one that we have here in the book of Acts. To my face continually sacrificing in gardens idolatry and making offerings on bricks, idolatry. So uh, keep that in your mind. Paul feels the exact same feeling that God feels when he's provoked by idolatry. So that's why we're talking about a holy indignation. It's uh, God-centered 
uh, indignation is not that I'm upset generally because perhaps I'm losing my privileges and I don't like what you are doing. Is that I have this theocentric uh, uh, indignation because I respond to idolatry the same way that God responds. And that is very important to feel after God's heart. Because in order to do something, first we need to feel something. That is what happens here. In, and one of the problems of the church is that we have lost that art to be really frustrated, deeply frustrated with what we see around us. But here is the other thing. This indignation is inner indignation. Let's go to the next. So we read, his spirit was provoked within him. So Paul was not running around shouting and cursing and kicking them. Many times I think, what if instead of Paul we had Peter in that scene? And people, you know, Peter seeing the idols and being upset and he would start smashing them and saying names to them. And, you know, uh, Peter was a totally different nation, uh, personality. But Paul, we read, his spirit was provoked within him and he reasoned with them. He started having a conversation with them. So, uh, why I'm saying that? Because unfortunately, the church is well known as being angry. You know, people who are always angry at this, at that, at the other. And we need to have this posture that Paul had, that it was a very, an, an inner holy indignation that, you know, he was not running around shouting and saying things, but he was really, uh, it was an intense emotional feeling that led him in the action that we see uh, uh, in, in described in these passages. Now, so there is a good definition that I would like us to read, what it means to be, to, when we talk about this holy inner indignation, it comes from Dan Strange, which is uh, a, a British scholar. He says, we are not talking about irritability, but about a serious, settled, deep-seated commitment which understands the real sinister nature of all that which sets itself up as rival to God, however it might look to the contrary. So that is what we are talking about. Now, let's move on. Uh, and it's important to move on because the only th if the only thing that you feel is indignation, then you are not missional, you'll become confrontational, okay? So there is the third component that we see in Paul's uh, life. And that is that Paul was able to identify the manifestation of God's grace in the uh, society around him, uh, in, in the people. So that is important. That is a very important balance. Because if the only thing that we have to say to the society is no, then as I said, we will be confrontational. If the only thing we have to say is yes, so we're not missional. We don't have anything else to say, nothing different to say. But there is this Balance, which is very important to have this, uh, we still say no, but at the same time we say yes. There are elements in the culture that we see that God is already at work, and we, see to, we need to identify and see them. Let's see the next slide. So Paul, he talks about the altar to the unknown God. Okay, that is very interesting. So Paul says, as I, as I was walking around, and as I was seeing, actually, there is a very particular word that is being used, a theorun. is the word that you take, the word theory. So you analyze. You're able to see beyond, to see deeper, not simply 
superficially, but you can see deeper. So Paul sees uh, the altar to the unknown gods, and he sees something beyond idolatry there. So a question is, why do they have that? Of course, what you see there is late. It's not what Paul saw. This is Roman. Uh, but we have uh, witness and testimonies from Greek literature that there were many altars dedicated, careful to the unknown gods, plural. And Paul already subverts that, and he talks about the altar to the unknown God, okay, singular. But what does Paul see? Why do they have these altars? I mean, the most popular explanation is that they have these altars um, because they were afraid. Fear was the explanation. So because there are so many gods that you're always, you know, uh, it's easy to forget some, some god, and, you know, gods can act, you know, in weird ways, and you are always exposed to them, to their wrath, and, and so you need to appease them, so you do, you know, like sacrifice to this god, you do sacrifice to this goddess, and, you know, on and on it goes, but at the end, you, you may have forgotten somebody, so let's have an altar to the unknown gods, and just do a sacrifice for everything so we can cover all our bases, okay? So that was an explanation why they had that, it was out of fear. But Paul sees something beyond that. He sees a longing. He sees a longing. Okay, we may have all these gods, but there must be something more than that. Actually, those of you who know at least some classical history, you know about Socrates. I mean, the reason why Socrates was executed, it was exactly that. Because he was talking about something. There must be another god I don't know how to describe him, the unknown God. I don't know how to, to explain to you. I don't know his name, but there must be something beyond that. And Paul sees that. And he uses that. Uh, he sees the manifestation of grace. So that is what makes us missional. It's not simply to be upset with what is going on. I mean, if we only see darkness, we will be, as I said, confrontational, angry, upset with everybody. But at the same time, we need to see the evidence of God being at work already in ways that creates a thirst to the people. So, for example, for example, uh, uh, you know, we are famous uh, for introducing many things to you and to society, like democracy, mathematics, and theater, Okay. So the Greek tragedy, like next to Areopagus, there are two main theaters, ancient theaters. And we have these classic tragedies, and uh, Aeschylus is one of the well-known uh, authors, and he has written this play, you name it, this, sorry for the names, I, I can, Evmenides is in Greek, Eumenides, you said in English. So here is the story. The story is about Orestes, who has killed his mother, Clytemnistra. Why did he kill his mother? Because Clytemnistra uh, killed her husband, Orestes' father, Agamemnon. Dysfunctional family, right? Uh, so let me recap. Orestes killed his mother, Clytemnistra. Why? Because he was upset because Clytemnistra has killed uh, her husband, Orestes' father, Agamemnon. So he's tried. He is a court scene. And where exactly do you think this court takes place? At Mars Hill, at the Areopagus, in the play. The very same place where Paul is, all right? And um, uh, he is tried by Athena, which is the goddess of the city. 
sees the judge, and Apollo, another god, like mythology in the theater, comes to his defense. And Apollo, in order to defend his act, he tries to see the magnitude of the crime of Clytemnistra. And he says this, this is actually from the play. He says that my father Zeus, Zeus is the high god in the pantheon, can do many things, he can do almost everything. He has many tricks, he can do everything. There is only one thing that Zeus cannot do. If a man dies and his blood dries up in the ground, Zeus cannot bring him back from the dead. Zeus can do anything and everything, but there is only one thing, and that is, they use the very word anastasis. He cannot bring resurrection. And Paul comes to this audience that they're longing for this God, and he says, what if there is a God who can bring back to life the dead? What if there is a God who can bring resurrection? And he says, I'm here to tell you that there is, and I'm here to proclaim this God. So being missional, you realize, means that you say to the culture, no, and then you say yes, and there is this intensity and this tension between the two, and that is what Paul is doing. And basically, what we recognize here is that God is already at work. You know, what will encourage us to have a missional attitude is that God is already at work. And perhaps we need to pray for discernment to see how God has prepared people all over around us. How God has put longings and thirst in their hearts that we can go and say, yes, what you are searching for is true. But you are searching it in the wrong place. Yes, but no, but yes. This is something, if you have read... Tim Keller's book on preaching, he uses this very simple line, which is very helpful, that when we engage with society, there are three steps. We say, yes. I mean, yes, it's true that you long for a God who can bring people from the dead. But no, it's not Zeus or whoever. But yes, here is, I mean, the proper way I'm proclaiming to you. So this is what it means to be uh, missional, but there is one more thing, and now that will lead us on going on mission. Okay, so this is so far is in the circumstances of your life, in the society, in the context where you live, you are missional. Why? Because you live, you know, with gospel intentionality in the ordinary circumstances of your life. Uh, you are properly upset. You feel things. Uh, and also you see God at work, you see the manifestations of grace, and you just take all these opportunities. But that is not enough. There is the final step. And that is to get out, to step out of your comfort zone and enter into a new territory. Why we say that? If we can see the next, and, and again, the next slide. So we read that Paul, once he was in Athens, he started reasoning and discussing with people who were in the synagogue. And that is interesting. Uh, if you were with us on Friday, we examined Acts 16. And that is the place where Paul stands in Troas in Asia. And God sends him a vision to tell him, go over, you know, enter into this Gentile territory. Up to that point, uh, Paul was in this familiar area in Asia, 
primarily working among Jews. I mean, there is only one exception in Acts 14 that he's in Lystra, and this is again a Gentile audience, but still in a familiar place. But now he stepped into Greece, right, which is a totally unknown territory. But it's interesting that even though he's in Greece, most of his ministry up to that time is in synagogues. So in Philippi, he goes to the synagogue. Uh, in Thessalonica, he goes to the synagogue. In Berea, he goes to the synagogue. In Athens, first he goes to the synagogue. But now, let's see the good. Now he's ready to make a big step. He goes to the synagogue and in the marketplace. Now, when we talk about the marketplace, the Agora, if we can see the next slide, we're not talking about a big shopping mall. The Agora is the public space, is where politics, where civil life, where commerce, where art, where philosophy happens. This is a famous painting you can find in the Vatican, where Plato and Aristotle, you know, all the philosophical schools are there. We see the Epicureans, the Stoics, and it's, it's a scary place for Paul to enter in. The marketplace is not the familiar territory of the synagogue that he knows very well his Bible and he can throw verses here and there. Now he enters in a, in a new territory, and that is that we need to do. That is being going on, on a mission. We need to move out from our comfort zone and enter into a new territory, the unknown, which is sometimes scary, but this is where the Lord is leading us. Now, there is a final question, and we'll end with that. Why should we do that? Why should we do that? And it's very important to come back to how Paul describes what happened. He uses this expression when he starts talking. He says, as I was walking, as I was passing along, as I was passing along. That term, that word in Greek is very interesting because we encounter it many times in the book of Acts. If we see the next slide, I mean, we transferred the PowerPoint from the slides from keynote to PowerPoint. That's why we have missed several words. So where you see the blanks. There, there was supposed to be red color, and you see the same word is being used in all these scripture passages. So they describe the missionary activity of the apostles. And it's the same verb, as, the, as I was passing along, as we were passing along. As we're, so it's a technical term describing their missionary activity. Now, why is that important? Because when we go to Acts chapter 10, Peter describes the work of Jesus Christ, and he says... God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing. Guess what? What verb is being used there? The exact same verb that we find in Paul. What does that mean? It means that before Paul, before the apostles, before you and me are walking and going along into missions, Jesus Christ walked that road before for our own sake. Jesus Christ and God is not asking us to do something that he hasn't done before already for us. So the gospel is our motivation. The gospel is the answer as to why should we do it because God has done it already for us. And we are his people. I mean, the best definition of what is a Christian we find in the book of Revelation is those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So we just follow his footsteps, and that is what it means to be on a mission and to be missional.
And I always say to my church, and this is my prayer and my wish for your church as well, that part of our vision is to realize that this whole thing is not about us. I mean, we don't exist for ourselves and for our sake. The church exists to be on a mission, to be missional, to be a witness. And for us, part of our vision statement is that we want to be a resource center, a channel. We are not the, the end point. We're just a channel so that God's blessing and God's gospel will come through us to Athens, to Greece, the Balkans, and to the ends of the world. And the same thing I pray for you, my brothers and sisters, that Christ's covenant will be a channel that will leave the mission every day, but also in particular ways, here in Knoxville, in Tennessee, and all the way to the ends of the earth.